Our children may be dismissed at this time for Children's Church. And as they are leaving, would you join me in Philippians chapter 4, one more time, reading from verse 10 to the end of the chapter. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi, verse 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In every and any circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that this is more than just an hour of talking and listening. I pray that this is an hour where our hearts are given to worship because we're hearing you speak to us through the written word. And with that in mind, I do ask that you would give to me the ability to speak clearly and well, accurately on these things that are written for us, for your church. But I pray that by your spirit, you would lead us all along in that path of sanctification, whereby day by day, we are becoming conformed more to the image of your son and less being like ourselves. So we thank you for this ministry of your spirit. We thank you for the written word. I thank you for each one that is gathered here this morning. And may you do the work on the heart that you alone can do. And we praise you for that in Christ's name. Amen. I just wanted to make a quick announcement that we are ordering a new screen for the fellowship hall. Because probably those of you that watch the video in Sunday school notice how fuzzy the images look. So I've gone to Amazon this week, and three separate occasions I've ordered the same screen. And on two of those occasions, Amazon has written back that that particular vendor can't fulfill my order. So they refund. So I ordered the same product from another vendor, and they couldn't fill my order. I've now made a third order, and I haven't heard word back, so I think that's good news. But like many of you, there is a superstore in Mount Vernon where my wife and I have noticed that nearly every time we go for the products that we want, the shelves are empty. I don't know why it is, because a superstore is supposed to super impress us, because it has super merchandise that provides us with our needs. 
and yet instinctively, or uh, traditionally, I guess even, this store has empty shelves with the things that we want. Maybe they're providing the things that other people want, but they seem to be uh, so often empty on the shelves. I bring that up because this morning you will notice the heading that we are moving to in our study of Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to bring this study of the book of Philippians to an end this morning. But as I start in verse 19, and I look at what Paul is saying to the church about God's benevolent care, And I realize what he is telling us is that the shelves are never empty with the Lord. And one of the, the, probably the nice things of delaying my sermon series for another week, remember the last time we left off, I didn't make it through, so we're picking up where we left off. One of the advantages, or or I guess one of the dividends behind stretching out a sermon like that is I can re-look at my headings and I can say, well, I think I'm going to make some adjustments here. And so you'll notice there's a line scratching out, a word that I had chosen, where God is compensating us. And I use that word compensate very carefully because I believe that what God is telling us in verse 19 is that he's compensating us for any loss that we may experience on account of serving him. Because that's exactly what Paul is telling the church. God will supply all your needs. The shelves will never be empty. But I've chosen to use a different word. And I want to say this in light of what we read before from 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and in verse 8, where the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, in regard to giving, God is able to make all grace abound to the giver that we may have all sufficiency in everything so that we may have an abundance for every good work. There's a lot of every and all in that verse. And what Paul is telling the church is that in our giving ministry, we're never going to run out because God is there replenishing the supply. So as we give to the ministry of Christ and the gospel, where we lose, God refills. He replenishes for the purpose of giving more. He's replenishing. And in this way, he's continuing the work of the gospel ministry And we often hear the expression, it is impossible to outgive God. That's exactly what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9, and here again in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19. But again from 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 10 and 11, Paul continues to say that God who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in everything for all liberality. Again, Paul is caught up with that all and everything idea in God's provision, which through us, is producing thanksgiving to God, he writes. Therefore, a better word, perhaps, to fit the context of Philippians chapter 4 is the word replenish because it communicates the idea of God's restoring grace to the giver with the purpose that that giver will continue giving. God's restocking the shelves so that we can continue to take from that produce and to reseed the ground that God has given to us. At the same time, God is gracious to make sure that all of the giver's needs are being met. That's what Philippians 4 and verse 19 is telling us. Not only is God giving more so that we can give, 
but he's providing for the needs of the giver. Now, I'd like to consider three views of God's benevolent supply, beginning in verse 19, as he replenishes the needs of the church. Those three views are God's people, God's riches, and God's glory, beginning with God's people, where Paul says, and my God will supply. The church in Philippi is who Paul is writing to here. And this is now personal to Paul. You notice the personal pronoun contrast that with verse 20, our God. But here, verse 19, it is my God. Remember that Paul has just given instruction to the church on the giving and the receiving ministry that Philippi has been involved with. And the gift that Philippi, the monetary gift that Philippi has sent to Paul has sustained him in the ministry as he sits in Rome chained to a praetorian guard. He's been out of the gospel commission, so to speak, at least out of the missionary traveling business for over two years by this time. But he's continuing to carry on the gospel ministry as God has put him there in Rome and he's writing letters to the churches, letters that we now have in the inspired word of God. So God had his purpose for Paul being there and God rose up by his grace a church like Philippi that would sustain Paul's needs while he's there chained and imprisoned in Rome. Paul uses the personal pronoun here because I believe Paul is letting the church know this is exactly what I've experienced from God. My God has done this for me. He will do this also for you. Paul is giving his personal testimony of the benevolent character of God. And if there is a major object in verse 19 it has to be God himself as the giver the benevolent nature of God Paul has personal experience with the faithfulness of God to benevolently care for his needs and therefore he says my God will supply the God that cared for Paul is the same God that will care for the church. God has personally cared for Paul time and time again. And that's why previously in this chapter, he could say, I have learned to be content whether I go hungry or if I'm filled. Whether there's abundance before me or I'm in want. I've learned the secret of contentment. Because even when material things were low and my belly was becoming empty, Christ gave me the strength to get along in those circumstances. God will supply all your needs as he supplied my needs. And then here you come, Philippi, with this monetary gift that now is giving to me material resources to sustain my needs. God has supplied me through the generous gift of these believers. Paul saying, God has taken care of my needs. He is my God. He's done this for me. He will do this for you. And it was with this ministry of God in mind, a ministry of God's grace to the Apostle Paul, that Paul now exhorts the church, he's going to take care of you in the same way. It would be God's ministry of grace for the needs of the church. But a detail that we do not want to miss in this personal perspective is the consideration of one's needs. Because Paul has made this personal. This is about what God has done for me. He will do it for you as well because we are God's people. He is our God, as he says in verse 20. 
We don't want to miss a detail in regard to what these needs are. Because when Paul speaks of my God supplying all your needs, he is connecting the care that God has given to him personally with the care that God will give to these redeemed people in Philippi. Notice how Paul makes a deliberate switch in personal pronouns to verse 20. Now to our God and Father. Paul's God in verse 19 is the God of the church in verse 20. Same God, we are his people. And what Paul is alluding to in verse 19 is that God has taken care of all of his needs. And yet he is just inventoried back in verse 11 and 12 that sometimes he was running low on supplies. Therefore, where it says that God will supply all our needs, this should not be taken to mean that God will give us everything we want or even everything we think we need but rather God will give to us everything he knows we do need. If it is based upon Paul's personal testimony, then consider Paul's personal testimony. Because he walked through times with an empty belly. He walked through times of suffering and persecution. There were times of lack. There were times of abundance. And all through it, God knew exactly what Paul needed. Sometimes God filled his belly Sometimes God let Paul go hungry. Sometimes Paul was let go to move about in his missionary journeys. Other times he was restricted by chains. And all the while, God faithful to benevolently care for Paul supplied all of his needs. And God will supply your needs as well, he says to the church. The church in Philippi was known for its deep poverty. And they gave generously from that poverty. In 2 Corinthians 8, it says, in deep affliction or in great deal of affliction. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth of this. So he knew where these Philippians were coming from as they gave this generous gift to him. And yet there's no indication anywhere in God's word that God supplied the Philippians great wealth because they gave generously to Paul. Paul's God supplied his needs, so this would be the same God that is now going to take care of Philippi. And we've got to be careful here then to make a distinction between all our needs by God's determination and all our needs by our own personal judgment, our own limited judgment. Both verse 13 and verse 19 have been so badly misused by false teachers to promote greedy and selfish desires that God will give me everything I want or that if I give money to the church, he's going to make me wealthy. He's going to give me stuff. He's going to make me like Abraham with many camels and sheep. Providence will determine what our needs are, not selfish greed. As one author noted, Paul promised that God would meet not their greed, but their need. Not all they thought they needed, but all they truly needed. So we must, by Paul's testimony here, make a careful distinction. Because we give to the Lord does not mean that God is going to make us wealthy. He's going to restore to us what we need by his determinations, not by our own greed. So verse 19 then is not a promise that God will fulfill all our own wish lists, but rather that God's wish list for us will be fulfilled by him. He will supply 
his people with all they need. And second view we want to see in the benevolent care of God is that he's giving according to his riches, his riches in glory. We observe again that all needs will be met according to this, according to the riches of God himself. And this is a comforting word. It would have comforted the church in Philippi. Indeed, if they were struggling financially, if they were in deep poverty and and a great deal of affliction, imagine what this would have said to them. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches. And again, it's the emphasis, the shelves will never go bare. Not with God, because there is no poverty with God. Our benefactor is not impoverished, He will never come upon hard times such that our needs won't be met. His generosity on our behalf will be in accord with His great riches and wealth and glory, meaning that God has unlimited resources and will provide for His church according to those riches. Now again, this does not mean that He's sending to us bags of heavenly gold by angels that are delivering to us the riches out of heaven itself. But it does mean that everything is at God's disposal. Everything that he does in his generosity towards us is in accordance or in proportion to his riches, his unlimited wealth. And we can be assured that we will never be in want because God ran out of resources. We may be in want because he wants us there, as Paul was found there at times. We may be in want because God wants us there, but never because of divine poverty. I've read some commentaries that believe that the riches in glory confines these to heavenly things or spiritual things or eternal things. But I would argue that Christ reigns with sovereign power over all things. And that's why verse 19 says, all your needs will be met according to his riches. He has unlimited resources. He's never going to run out. And he has the wisdom and the discernment to know how to take care of his people. He took care of Paul. He took care of the church in Philippi. He'll take care of us today. Because he gives generously as a benefactor according to his riches. He never runs out. His bank account is never running low or empty. Nothing is outside of his ability Nothing is outside of his resources to supply. His riches must then include money, material goods, health, spiritual needs, wisdom, perseverance, patience, love, maturity in Christ, heavenly rewards. What does he not have control over? What does he not own? If he owns the cattle on a thousand of hills, you know he owns everything. And everything is at his disposal. So that if we look at the specific context of Paul writing here in chapter 4, it is about the material needs given to Paul. The church sent him money. It supplied his needs. Paul responds by saying, and my God will supply your needs as well. So the specific context is material things, and in this case, money. It may have left the church in Philippi on hard times to send this generous gift to Paul. Yet what Paul encourages these believers with is that no matter if they need, their need is material or spiritual or monetary or physical or emotional, God can supply it all 
because he is infinitely wealthy. Whatever is needed, God knows and he will provide. But we are also to be reminded that that since we are in Christ Jesus, we are now owned by him and God's people, that God is the one who determines what we need. It may not be what we want. But this is why Paul found himself content in every circumstance. As this verse shows, giving and receiving is all for his glory. Paul trusted that God knew what he needed at any given moment. He wants the Philippians to have the same confidence in Christ, a confidence that will produce contentment no matter their circumstance. And it's only the true believer that can have this confidence. If we're in Christ by faith, we will experience God's providing his benevolent care according to his riches in glory. God will provide all our needs according to his purposes and his unlimited resources that he has to draw upon. Because this verse follows the previous commendation for the church's financial gift, Paul wants these Christians to know that God will compensate them. He will replenish whatever loss they experience. He'll give them what they need. But this verse is not limited to God's response to our giving to the ministry. All our needs are under his care, Paul says. So he has unlimited resources to provide for those needs. We may experience loss because we're giving to the needs of others. God will replenish. We may experience loss just for the sake of living the Christian life in this world. He knows what we need, and he knows how to supply it. The point here is that our benefactor has unlimited resources. The riches of everything belong to him. He owns it all. And this brings us to the third view of the benevolent care of God. His glory his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. If we just take a running stab at what that means, we're going to say, okay, that means the riches of heaven. Glory then would be like a location. But that's not what this verse is declaring. This third view that Paul gives of God's benevolent care is that he will give for his glory. This glory is named here in verse 19. It's then repeated in verse 20. Verse 19 we can think of as a present glorification of Christ. In verse 20 we see there's an eternal glorification of Christ, but in the end it is the same. Christ will be glorified. In other words, what God supplies for the needs of his church will magnify his own perfections and his own divine nature to give to our needs, to give to his own people, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, must of necessity reflect the brightness of the redemption of the gospel of the Savior himself. That's why it says, riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And the people of God, the church, are the ones that are in Christ Jesus. When Paul added these words, in glory in Christ Jesus, he is telling the church in whom and how the care of all of our needs will come to us. Providing for the church will happen for the advancement of our Savior's glory and for his ultimate purpose. God will give to us in such a way that he's going to make his son look good. We come to faith in Christ. We are now in Christ. We belong to Christ. We're his people. Paul is saying to the church, he knows how to take care of us. 
He knows our needs. And as God supplies, it glorifies what it means to be in Christ Jesus. It glorifies the gospel. It glorifies the Savior of that gospel. As God provides for those who belong to His Son, it proclaims the glory of what it means to be in Christ. This is how God cares for His family. And this gives to the church a magnificent confidence in how God provides for all of our needs. If it is done according to the riches in glory in His Son, we can be assured that God will care for all of our needs because His Son's name is at stake. We are united to His Son. And in that sense, you and I as believers share in His glory. We're sharing in this. Two verses that communicate this doctrinal truth. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may be also, what? Glorified with Him. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14. It was for this He, God, called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what these passages are telling us? That to be in Christ is to share the glory of Christ. And as God is ministering to all of our needs, you and I have a, a marvelous part in glorifying the Son of God. Because he's caring for his children. He's caring for Jesus' young brothers and sisters. He's caring for his children. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, observes that Paul frames God's benevolent supply of our needs as that which is done in glory. Meaning that glory, the word glory there in verse 20, uh, 19, is modifying the verb. And the verb is supply. God will supply. Hence, William Hendrickson writes, God will gloriously supply. Supplying all our needs is a Christ-glorifying work because you and I as believers are in Christ. We are therefore sharing in His glory as we are cared for by our Heavenly Father. The glory of Christ is at stake. Do you think He's not going to care for His family? Well, Paul isn't asking that question, but isn't that the underlying fine print? Would God honestly not care for his family, those that are in Christ, when his son's glory is at stake? Imagine the confidence this gave to suffering, persecuted Christians or Christians that are living through poverty. Imagine the contentment that it breeds, as it did in the Apostle Paul. It assures us that God will provide for our needs because it glorifies His benevolent nature. It allows us to have a part in displaying the glory of God. Just receiving, just being recipients. We're having a part in glorifying Christ and His gospel. This is what it means to be in Christ. And you and I as believers can rejoice in that. What we often find in Paul's letters is that when he writes on a magnificent theological truth, he oftentimes gets caught away in a rabbit trail of praise. And that's exactly what he does. He's contemplating what he's writing to the church in Philippi in verse 19. Look where he goes immediately following. He gets pulled away 
by this proclamation of praise, now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let it be written. So be it. It's so typical of Paul to write this way. And oftentimes his rabbit trails are much, much longer. But you can see the heart of Paul as he's contemplating the benevolent care of God himself for his church. And he gets caught up. I have to stop and praise God here. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And this brings us to the benediction of the letter. In verse 20 to verse 23, Paul sees this as a wonderful place to bring his letter to a close. He's just affirmed to the church that God is faithful to care for all their needs in Christ and for his glory. He praised the church, thanked the church for their very generous gift that ministered to his needs. But more important, it was a gift that partnered that church with the Apostle Paul in his apostolic and ongoing gospel ministry because of their heart and motive to support this work. Paul gives assurance to the church that their gift is well-pleasing to the Lord. It's a sacrifice that God himself is delighted with. It's a fragrant aroma that is lifted up to heaven. And you see that there in verse 18. In other words, what that church did for Paul was an act of worship. I don't know that we often think about that as we're putting money in the offering plate, but it should be thought of as an act of worship. Or you're sending money off to a missionary. Or you give of your service or your spiritual gifts. When you're giving, do you think of it as an act of worship? That's what Paul is encouraging this Philippian Christians with. You've done well to stand in partnership with the ministry. They gave money to Paul to help, but God received their gift as acceptable worship. And then he follows this with this marvelous affirmation, but don't worry, Philippi. Whatever you've suffered as loss here, God will supply what you need. He's taken care of me. He's my God. And he has supplied my needs. He's going to take care of you as well. Paul's confidence in God's benevolence was based on his theological knowledge of God's riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And having given his thoughts in writing on these things, Paul brings this to a place of praising God. Perhaps it could be said that what has stirred this vision of praise in Paul is not simply this last expression of God's benevolent work, but everything that he's written about Christ in this letter. It's now flooding into his heart and mind such that he ends by saying, Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He's not only benevolent in caring for our physical needs. Look back in the letter and see how God has ministered spiritually, emotionally, how he takes care of his church. Chapter 2, what his son was willing to do for his church in taking on the bodily form of a slave to our needs and dying even on a cross for us. What is certain is that the contemplation of all of these things, the theological understanding in Paul's mind of God's nature and his gracious work towards his church draws the heart of the believer to praise God. Paul ends this letter in a somewhat usual style with friendly greetings and blessings. But given the heart that he had for this church in Philippi, having enjoyed the fellowship together in Christ, this is not merely a typical benediction. 
It is a response of worship to the gospel, a gospel that was mutually loved by Paul and this church of believers, this small group of believers in Philippi. Therefore, in verse 20, Paul is going to praise God for his eternal glory. In these final words of the letter, Paul's heart of worship towards the Lord has been stirred up, declaring that all glory belongs to our Heavenly Father. Where the glory of the Lord in verse 19 has a present visibility in the church as God gives to our needs, here the glory of God is going to be displayed on and on and on forever in eternity, such that Paul says, Amen. And you can imagine the church in Philippi. As this letter was read to them, they resounded with him, Amen. May glory be to God forever and ever. This is the worship of a redeemed man who is excited by the reality of God's magnificence in all of its brilliance put on display for eternity. And you and I as believers know that the natural man cannot have such desires since the unregenerate person only seeks self-glory. That's where we were before we came to Christ. It was only about our own glorification, satisfying our own lusts, our own desires, our own appetites. But not when we came to Christ. We see the glory. The veil has been removed, as it says in that third chapter of 2 Corinthians. And though we see in a partial way, we do see the glory of Christ. To look forward to endless days of enjoying God's glory and the passion of worship that is produced by the Holy Spirit, that's what we look forward to. The believer alone is excited to be under the full rule of Christ's righteousness. The unsaved, they don't look forward to that. But the believer in Christ, we're looking forward to the full rule of Christ's righteousness in eternity. We long to see the reign of sin come to an end finally. And we long to be surrounded by the holiness of who God is in his presence. It is the Westminster Confession that reminds us that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to what? Enjoy Him forever. For the true church, like the Apostle Paul, that eternal enjoyment has begun in this life for us. Even if His glory is partially obscured to us, and Paul anticipates the future of endless days that God's glories will be veiled no longer where the preeminent excellence of God will be our ultimate pleasure. Paul confirms this wonderful truth by saying, now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Affirming, this is what we look forward to. This is our future. This is a good reminder to the church of our principal calling as believers. Worshiping God is not merely something we do when we open the hymn book and we sing a song together. It's not merely something we do when we put words into our mouth and speak them out. It's a heart that enjoys God in His present dealings with us. And it's what we look forward to, to doing in all of eternity in His presence as Paul has just taught the church Worship is a heart desiring to glorify the Lord, to give a gift to Him that He is well pleased to receive. Even sending money to a gospel missionary that's chained in Rome and God accepts it as a sacrifice of worship 
that he's pleased to receive. Worship comes from a heart born again to God through Christ that now wants to serve him, to speak his gospel, and to stand with those who do so that God may be glorified. This has really been the underlying theme of Paul's message to this church. These Philippian Christians have faithfully stood together, fellowship, unity together with the Apostle Paul for the glory of Christ, for the fellowship of the gospel participation that they were engaged in. So to them, it was no big deal to empty out their wallets and send in a hurry a love gift to Paul that they knew he needed desperately. This is what draws Christians together in fellowship and service. It is the enjoyment of God and the passion to see him glorified. Second, verse 21 and verse 22, again, this is no just common benediction. But Paul emphasizes the holy fellowship that Christians have together. Verse 21 and 22, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Having come to this glorious expression in verse 20, it should not be surprising to us that this forever glory for God precedes the words of this benediction. The greeting of these fellow believers being named here. Because Paul is joining his praise with the praise that he knows belonged to these Philippians. Paul is not alone in being passionate for the glory of God. And in contemplating this eternal glory, what comes to mind next are those that have shared this passion with him, the Philippians. As Paul considers his chief end, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, he thinks of those that have that, that harmonious passion. You Philippians, you have this as well. So Paul begins this greeting with all of the Philippian believers who have held a special place of affection in his heart, and he greets them. This specific instruction here would have been first read by the elders. As Paul sent this letter by Epaphroditus' hand to the church in Philippi, if you go back to chapter 1 and read verse 1, that letter would have gone to the deacons and the elders of the church first. And then on the Lord's day, one of the elders would have stood and read this letter to Paul to the church. So when it says here in verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the elders would have read that and said, we need to read this to the church. And every one of them would have held, heard that expression of unity and love between Paul and these very dear believers. Paul wants to make sure that when this letter is read to the church, all of the members knows that he treasures the rich fellowship that he has with them all. And I want us to notice how he refers to these believers. He's called them brethren throughout this letter. Notice the change here. Greet every saint in Christ. These believers are not saints because they've sent him money. They're not saints because they've achieved some meritorious recognition of the church magisterium or some recognition for their works or devotion or their virtue or their service to Christ or their service to the church. They are saints because they belong to Jesus Christ by faith as is every other gospel believer. They are true saints because Christ has made them so. The word saint is from the Greek word hagios, where we get the word holy. 
means to set apart, to be sanctified. It is sacred. What Paul is calling these believers is holy ones. Greet the holy ones in Christ Jesus. Because when we are found in Christ, we are made holy in Christ. Sanctified, set apart, saints of God. To be set apart as holy to the Lord identifies the thorough cleansing work of Christ upon our lives such that we are spiritually standing before God, pure in his eyes, sanctified and acceptable to him. And this is a marvelous truth for you and I today. Because if we are believers in Christ, how does God see me right now? Well, as I see me right now, I know a man that continues to sin even though I'm a believer. I was blemished this week. I will be blemished this coming week. It's hard for me sometimes to see myself as holy. But that the God that is holy can see me as holy is a marvelous truth. And it reminds us that Christ took all of our unrighteousness upon himself. Paid the price for that unrighteousness on the cross. And when I receive that Savior by faith, his righteousness was imputed or placed on me. So that as God looks at this son, this adopted child, he sees the righteousness of his own son. He sees me through the lens of the holiness of Jesus Christ. We are saints in Christ. This is not what the Catholic Church teaches about sainthood, but it is what the Word of God teaches about what it means to be a saint in Christ Jesus. At the same time, gospel faith has removed all sin in God's eyes, past, present, and future, replacing it with the righteousness of God's Son so that we can be identified as holy or saints in Christ Jesus. By virtue of the cross of Christ, this is what marks our fellowship. We are saints together, holy ones, set apart. And if you are in Christ by faith, you are one of these holy ones. It's what marks our fellowship, not because or of, by virtue of our works or our own righteousness, but only by virtue of the righteousness of the God's Son. By his righteousness, we are made saints. For Paul to greet all the Philippian saints in Christ is to identify the true spiritual fellowship that you and I are privileged to have together in the presence of God. And one would think, if we took hold of this theological truth by itself, we would treat each other very, very differently. It's sad to say there are many sitting here today that have not treated other people well in the faith, in the church. Whether that's people in your family, people in this church, people that are believers from other churches. If we took hold of this truth, that we are together in fellowship as holy ones of God. Imagine how we should be treating each other. Second, there are Christians by Paul's side there in Rome. They also want to greet the Philippian believers. Now included is certainly Timothy, Epaphroditus. Those have been named in chapter 2. But we go back to chapter 1 and you look at verse 15 and 16. Paul writes of those from the church in Rome who are preaching the gospel from goodwill and from hearts 
that loved Christ and loved his church. These are ones that are with Paul too there in Rome. They want to send greetings to uh, Philippians. They were standing with Paul in the ministry knowing that he was appointed by Christ for the defense of the gospel, it says in verse 15 and 16 of chapter 1. These fellow believers are there in Rome with Paul, joined together, Timothy and Paphroditus included. It's speculated also by other scholars that there was a small group of brethren included in this this, uh, gathering around Paul. Perhaps people like Tychicus, Onesiphorus, Mark, and Luke, But these Christians wanted to send their greetings to Philippi. And this suggests that Paul had been bragging to these Roman Christians about this special church in Philippi. And of hearing about them, these believers knew at once, we are bonded with these saints also. We have a fellowship with them, therefore greet them. Make sure they know from us of our love and our union with them in Christ We share the gospel. We share the love of the gospel. We share the love of the Savior. We desire to see Him glorified and we together with them will enjoy Christ forever. Amen. They're joining themselves in fellowship by sending this greeting. And we can see knowing the heart of Paul for this church. This is no typical benediction. He's not just being polite. He's expressing what we have together as believers in Christ. Saints in fellowship in Christ. So they asked Paul, greet the church for us. And third, adding to this, the greeting of all the Roman believers that have come to know Christ, that have come to know of the Apostle Paul, fellowshipping together with him in his chains. It's hard to know all of the all in saints that he's referring to here. For sure, they are true believers there in Rome. Perhaps they are part of the church in Rome but who did not have direct contact with Paul. Certainly there were ones there in the Roman church that did have direct contact. Perhaps there are some that didn't have direct contact. But word has come to them that they wish to be acknowledged in fellowship, send a greeting with us to Philippi. And that possibly could have included those in Rome that had a problem with Paul. And were causing trouble for Paul in the preaching of their gospel. Paul knew that they were preaching the gospel to do him harm. And we read that in chapter 1. But remember he praised God. That some might hear that gospel and be saved. So Paul shows us an example of what it means to love the gospel. More than we hate those that come against us. More than we hate the opposition that comes against us. We love Christ more than we hate that opposition. There's a fourth group that named here in the greeting. There's a special greeting from Caesar's household. And we talked about this back in chapter 1. But this doesn't necessarily refer to the blood lineage of Caesar or even those that are related by marriage. It would have included the household servants and slaves, the employees of the house of Caesar, including the Praetorian Guard. And again, as we saw back from chapter 1, some within that Roman soldier contingent had come to faith in Christ. You can imagine a, a guard chained to Paul 
as he's writing this letter and he's speaking it to those that maybe are scribing it down for him. They're saying, wait a minute, include me in on that. Send to this church my greeting. Extend to them my fellowship of love. Why would somebody, why would a Roman guard do that? Because they now have been brought into this fellowship of love. Loving the Savior. Loving the gospel. Enjoying him forever and ever. Amen. Yes, greet them from us. It's not uncommon for letters of this time period to exchange greetings like this. But to discern what Paul is communicating in fellowship with these believers, some of whom had never met the Philippian Christians, we need to understand what is on the heart of Paul here. This was no mere benediction. It was no mere casual greeting. Paul felt intimately joined in Christian love with this broader company of believers from Philippi to Rome, from the Jewish community to the household of Caesar, Gentile, Jew alike, bonded together in Christian love. I just want to share a couple of statements. The first will be by James Boyce. He says, Paul had been speaking of the glory of God, which is certainly an exalted theological concept, but he no sooner speaks of it. He's referring to verse 20. But he no sooner speaks of this than his mind immediately turns to those who would actually give glory to God. And so we see this company of believers sending greetings to the church in Philippi. William Hendrickson adds to this. Truly, this was not just a merely formal, polite, customary way of ending a letter. These greetings were from the heart to the heart. And notice what he says. The fellowship is functioning. It's working. It's being what it's supposed to be. We've come to the end of a letter where Paul has been very sentimental, very affectionate, very thorough in communicating his deep gospel fellowship with these brothers and sisters in Christ that were very dear to his heart. There is no way that we can look at this benediction and not conclude that these Christians shared a common bond of fellowship in glorifying Christ and a passion to enjoy him forever and ever. I would argue that the believer in Christ who truly desires to enjoy him forever will want to be in fellowship with others who have like passion and like worship. The richness of what we have in our union with Christ together is the ultimate priority of glorifying God. When the glory of God and the enjoyment of him is our greatest desire, we want to be with those who share this passion. And we'll close now in verse 23 because this brings us to the inward grace that Paul speaks of here. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is how Paul ends this letter. A blessing of grace. He ends all of his letters with a blessing of grace. It's how he opened this letter to Philippi. What Paul desires for the church is that they come under the full ministry and blessing of God's unmerited favor through Christ. Certainly all men, saved or unsaved, have experienced some of God's grace. We all live on his globe, his planet all men enjoy the warmth of his sunshine. All men receive the benefits of being watered by the same rain, but the sustaining grace of God upon the spirit of man, that comes only by faith in the cross. 
It's a grace that not only redeems our souls, but it empowers us to inwardly live for the glory of God and seeking his pleasure. This is the unmerited favor of God to forgive sin, to enable the believer to live in victory over sin. It is the inward work of grace upon our spirit, the inward man to love as Christ loves, to regard others as more important than ourselves, to conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. The blessings of God's grace in Christ causes us to forget what is behind us and to press forward reaching for Christ's likeness, which is the prize that Paul spoke of in chapter 3. It is the grace of God on us that finds us standing firm in the Lord, living in harmony with each other in the Lord, and having the peace of God that is guarding our hearts and minds. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us to be content in whatever circumstances we are in, strengthened by Christ to do all that he asks of us. It is his grace that moves us to give and receive in the ministry of the gospel and the care and needs of the church, it is God's unmerited favor that will find us joined in Christian fellowship with other believers who are impassioned to glorify our God and Father and to enjoy Him forever. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation of all that we are and all that we do in Christ. It's all unearned, it is undeserved, and it is poured out upon us by the kindness and love of God for his people, his people who are in Christ Jesus by faith. Now very quickly, I just want to give you three closing statements. Beginning with the giving, receiving, and replenishing work of God's grace will lead us away from self-sufficiency and to Christ's sufficiency. Now that's capturing much of what the last half of chapter 4 has been teaching the church. But remember, as we give, as we receive, as he replenishes, it's all a work of grace. God is gracious to allow us to be givers into his work. We don't earn that. It's a work of grace. We receive from him. We're replenished by his spirit. All is a work of grace. And what this causes within the church is not self-sufficiency but Christ's sufficiency I think it's a peculiar quality in Christians that we like to be known for self-sufficiency don't we we like to be known for that I can take care of myself I can govern my own needs sometimes we even think I can take care of my own sanctification but when we truly understand the foundation of grace we come to the realization self-sufficiency has to be done away with completely And it's now all about Christ's sufficiency. And guess what? Sometimes Christ supplies that sufficiency through the church, through others. We depend on each other. Secondly, as a passion for God's glory and enjoyment should draw believers together in Christian fellowship. If our desire is to worship the Lord in pleasure and glory, we're going to want to be joined with others of like passion. What should ignite this passion is the study of God's word. Theology should lead us to unity. And that's what Paul has taught us at the end of this chapter. Being caught up in who God is, his benevolent care for his church, it should draw us together with others that have like mind and passion to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And third, The believer's greatest need 
and greatest asset is the grace of God found only in Christ Jesus. We labor and strive in this world for what our own hands can provide. And once we've provided that, we can be prone to hold on to it. This is my possession. It's my house. It's my car. It's my bank account. My retirement fund. My savings. This is what I have created. It's what I have done. And oftentimes, this thing that we strive for becomes the source of our self-worth and our pride. And yet what gives us real value is given to us entirely undeserved and unearned. Our hands couldn't provide this. We think what our hands earn for us is kind of who we are. And I'm proud of that. And shame on us for thinking that way because what is really valuable to the Christian, we didn't earn it and we didn't deserve it. Sadly, we often do not value grace as we do the other things that we provide with our own hands. And I think evidence of this is seen in how we see God in his benevolent care for his church. This is what Paul rejoiced in sending to this church in Philippi. And as he concluded these thoughts, so also we say, now to God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we do thank you for being a God that loves sinners. You've provided all that we need for fellowship with you, the cleansing of our sins, and for a glorious eternity with you. All of that has been provided freely through Christ. We couldn't earn it, and if we tried, we couldn't accomplish it. So, Father, how we praise you and thank you here this morning for grace. We thank you as well for being a God that is to be glorified and enjoyed forever. You're worthy of it. You deserve that. It is right that we are here this morning because you deserve what we have in offering worship to you this morning. You deserve far more than that. So, Father, it is our privilege to declare together as a people, we're going to keep glorifying you and keep enjoying you forever and ever because you are worthy of that. Father, thank you for this wonderful letter written to this church in Philippi. It's not hard to see now why you had that man, Apostle Paul, chained in Rome for a couple of years because there is a wealth of truth for the church today in this little letter. So we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.